Hello and welcome to Bluebells Forever, a podcast with interviews of Bluebell dancers past and present. Join Sherry Lewis, a Bluebell herself, as she leads us on a journey through story and experience. And now here's Sherry. Okay, so this is really fun for me. I get to interview my friend Michael. And we were in South Pacific together at the Fifth Avenue and so many, there's a whole podcast episode of the weird and wonderful things that happened in that show. I fell in the hot tub on stage. There's some wonderful. Everything, everything with bad, long native black wigs. Right. <laughs> and, so and many. Birds. Yeah. That, yeah. And so I, I, we stayed friends and then I, I only knew you in musical theater and then I saw you in a straight play. I saw you in night Night of the Iguana. Yeah, that you did that soon okay. after, and I had I got to see like your acting skills, which I was blown away. And then I've followed a lot of your career, and I'll introduce. I'll let you talk in a minute, but I'm on a roll here. That <laughs> so, we you send the best Christmas cards, and I remember 9/11 was one that that it was so powerful when you sent that, like that made me cry because you were living in New York when that happened. And then I'm every year we get a Christmas card, like here's Michael as Hamlet, or here's Michael. Uh, Jekyll and Hyde like they were always really beautiful photography and like I could keep track of what you're doing and then I get a Christmas card and this is where you corrected me for some reason I thought it was you in a loincloth as Samson but I was way off so as you introduce yourself I think that's the lead-in it wasn't a loincloth what were you wearing Michael I was I was very conservative I was in a sequin tuxedo um, <laughs> the Santa hat uh, with two showgirls show flanking me with boxing gloves at my face, and I had a huge black eye uh, and eight stitches in my uh, my eyebrow. And uh, I think the caption was, hope your holiday's a knockout. <laughs> and I but, went, wait, Michael's in Vegas? And so that kind of surprised me because I've known you musical theater and acting, and then Vegas, I know it fits in, in your trajectory somewhere, but it kind of made me go, huh, I wonder how Michael ended up in Vegas at Bally's. Well, so I yeah. think you can tell that story. Then we have to get back to the, how you got a black guy because that's priceless. Okay, yeah, I, um, I was living in New York at the time and I got a phone call from a friend, one of my best friends from college. Uh, and she and I had also worked on some cruise ships together and uh, worked at Disneyland as Dickens Carolers one Christmas season together. And the joke kind of became that she was like an agent to me because she'd call and she'd be like, Hey, I'm going to this audition. You want to come? Or, Hey, I know about this job or, Hey, I'm working on this cruise ship in Alaska and it's going to the South Pacific and we need another guy. Are you interested in auditioning? And so she calls and she said, so I'm in this show in Vegas called Jubilee and we're about to have auditions. And one of the male singers who's been in the show for 19 years is not going to be auditioning for his spot again. You should come and audition, you're perfect for it. And the idea of being in a Las Vegas review had never even crossed my radar. Um, I, I liked the little bit of time I'd spend in Vegas, but um, it, it just never even occurred to me. But I had a, a best friend who was getting married here in uh, Seattle that the following weekend and I thought, well, I could just kind of plan my whole trip and do a West Coast thing and go through Vegas for a couple of days and then go up to Seattle because I hadn't seen my friend in Vegas for a long time anyway and it would be fun to just extend the trip. 
So I made arrangements and said, sure, I'll show up. And um, partly wondering if I was even gonna go to the audition. And, um, but for the singing tracks, you needed to bring two uh, musical tapes on CD or uh, cassette tape of accompaniment for your vocal. And um, they said, you know, come to the showroom, sign up at such and such time, and, and you'll audition in the order you sign up. So get there early if you want. But what they don't tell you is you get into the showroom and you are auditioning in front of everybody else who's auditioning. And so you, oh, I just got the icon. Are you there? Yeah, you're, that, you're back. <laughs> my, bat, my battery's low. So uh -oh. I have to go down and plug this in. Um, but uh, so I, uh, the showroom's full of people who are there to audition. And um, I sang and they asked if I would come back the next day to a callback and uh, to audition with the current cast. And so um, I went down to the, uh, and I saw the show that night and I thought this is something actually that would, looks like a lot of fun. And um, I was really impressed with the uh, tastefulness of the show and uh, everybody seemed to be having a great time and it was a fun group of people and my friend from college was in it. And so went to the callback and um, they seemed to be interested, uh, but you know, didn't really know. And I, so I left to come up here to Seattle for the wedding that following week. And apparently my friend Katie, they called her into the office and they were like, will Michael really take this job if we offer it to him? Will he move here from New York? And she said, well, I haven't talked to him about, about it, but I you know, have a house with an extra bedroom. He can stay there. And um, I'm sure that he wouldn't have auditioned if he wasn't interested. And, so the next day I got a phone call from Fluff and, and uh, who is the producer of Jubilee. And, and she said, so this is the deal. We'd like you to be here in two weeks to start rehearsals. Um, but uh, you know, we know you've got a lot of life to figure out. And I said, well, yeah, I need to find a sublet for my apartment. I need to find an apartment and a place to live in Vegas. I need to find a car because I don't own a car and can't live in Vegas without a car. Um, so I, you know, can you give me a few days to see if I can make these arrangements uh, happen? And she said, yeah, take three days. Well, within an hour, I had a sublet. I had an apartment, a bed. My, I talked to my friend Katie. She said, yeah, rent my bedroom. And uh, I had a car lined up. And so I thought, well, this is obviously a sign that this is meant to be. So I called Fluff back and then I said, uh, I'll all signs are pointing to go, so I'll see you in two weeks. And um, so it was a six month commitment. I ended up uh, re-auditioning three months in for a second six month stint. And uh, because I was thrilled to be there at that point, I didn't, wasn't ready to leave. And um, so yeah, I spent a full year there. And uh, you were going to ask me about the, the black eye. I kind of yes. said to it because I, um, about six weeks in or a month in, I guess, I, they could tell I was starting to feel a little bit stir crazy doing the same show twice a night for six nights a week. And so Fluff called me into the office and she was like, you know, we lost a Samson to an injury and we don't have anybody to swing. And have you ever done any kind of a dodge dancing? And I had actually um, in, at, in the cruise ships and also a, a little bit randomly in college. I'm not by any means what I would consider a, a dancer. I have had dance class, but 
that's not my forte or normally what I get hired for. But as a singer, I'm a good dancer. But um, uh, I said, well, I'm willing to try. And um, one of the female principal dancers, Linda, who had been there for 25 years at that point, she'd been in the show in Jubilee when it first uh, opened. She'd never seen the show because she'd always been performing in the show. And she took me by the hand and she said, I'll teach him. And so she took me up during the dinner breaks between the two shows each night for several weeks and taught me the Samson track and all the, all of the lifts and the routine. And um, we uh, had a put in rehearsal um, for me and two other members of the male dancing corps that they were looking at as potential swings. And um, we had our put in at 1.30 in the morning after the second show with the full cast and crew and the set. And I was the one of the three potential swings that was able to climb the ladder of the rubble and, and uh, deal with the pyrotechnics and the hydraulics of the set collapsing and the elevator uh, at the end of the number. And I scrambled to the top of it and rode the elevator down to the basement. And so they hired me as the swing. So the second night that I went on as Samson, I uh, got through the whole number and was the second show and was, uh, she'd cut the hair, my hair and sent me to the dungeon. I was being beat up by two of the guards and one of them doubled back to punch me over the shoulder and instead punched me square in the eye and split my face open on stage in 3,000 people. And um, I describe it as being like the movie Carrie with the bucket of pig's blood. As soon as I felt the impact and touched my eye, I looked down and all I saw was blood gushing across my bare chest and over my G-string and down my legs and the look of horror on the faces of the first three rows of audience members. <laughs> and they take me off stage to uh, uh, turn me around and they're supposed to throw me under a cargo net and, that I wrestle with and then take me and tie me up to the t Philistine temple and I pull that down and all the rubble collapses and Delilah comes and throws herself at my feet and we ride the, the elevator down the 40 feet down to the basement and in a big burst of fire. And uh, instead they were like, you can't go back on stage. You're bleeding everywhere. You're a biohazard. All of the dancers are running around. Nobody knows what's going on. And so um, they call a cab. They said, a cab's waiting for you at the stage door. I was in nothing but a leather studded G-string. I said, I think I need to put clothes on. So I went to change and I'm listening to the numbers still going on through the monitor and bleeding, you know, out of my face. I can't open my eye. I feel like my eyeball's hanging out of its socket. And um, I get, they, the cab takes me down to... Uh, an urgent care clinic on the Las Vegas Strip in the middle of the night. It was about 1.30 in the morning now. Um, and this guy in a lab coat comes out with what looks like 32 gauge yarn and a needle. And he's like, well, let's sew that up. And I'm like, dude, it's my face, please. Right. You know, Is this your career? Yeah, How did you, what did you even sign in? Did you say this happened on stage? Or because it's Vegas, so it's not that weird. Yeah. That somebody came in from a stage accident true and you know they want to know because it becomes workman's comp they want to know who to bill and um but yeah so i had a really nasty gash and eight stitches across the top of my eyebrow um and forehead and um big black eye uh red blood red eyeball and um so i showed up to work on that was a thursday fridays was 
Friday was our day off. So I had a full day off. Showed up to work on Saturday and Fluff looked at me and she said, well, put some makeup on it. Let me see what it looks like. And so I did. And she said, if you want to go back out on stage, if you want to do your regular singing track tonight, you're more than welcome to and, and you can get paid. And so I did. I didn't miss a show. But um, when it came time for my Christmas card photo that year, I decided that there was no, going to be no hiding my big black eye. So I accentuated it with two showgirls with boxing gloves. And, That's so great. Yeah, it was, it was fun uh, to have uh, some way of, you know, making lemonade out of a lemon. But, <laughs> out of a bloody head. You know, everybody was telling me, oh, the guy that hits you feels so bad. He must feel a lot worse than you. I said, it feels pretty bad. It gets quite a- <laughs> Didn't but you I say do- you made the newspaper too? Yeah, it was, it was in the local paper. The woman who was playing Delilah, Linda, you know, like I said, she'd been in the show for over 25 years. And she called me the next morning. She said, you need to pick up a, a copy of the local paper. She said, it's, it's, they're writing about it because she said, when I came out, onto the stage to throw myself at Samson's feet and ride the elevator down. I looked up and there were two chains dangling from the Philistine temple. There was no Samson. She said, so I ran out and I started waving my big red cape around and you know, all the hydraulics and pyrotechnics and set collapsing, all of that happens because it's all automated. Um, Whether there's anybody on the temple or not, she said, so last night, she said, after 25 years, it's really hard for me to see anything new in the world of Jubilee, but that that's never happened. She said, so not only make Jubilee history, but we rewrote the Bible because Delilah brought the, the Philistine temple down instead of Samson oh uh, last night in Jubilee. Yeah, it was, uh, it's hard to make, make Jubilee history, but apparently I did. You did it. That, well, I'm just thinking those people in the front row because it's like, well, it's believable. That must be a really great blood packet or good theatrics. Are people really picked up on the fact that you were actually like split, split your eye open? Yeah, um, it's hard to know. I guess when I disappeared and never came back, people probably had their <laughs> they own. Probably, their that might have been serious. Yeah, they were like, what, what happened to that guy with the cool blood effect? Right. But, uh, well, even like doing so many plays, like we like uh, Fifth Avenue. I think wasn't that like two, three weeks of rehearsal, three weeks of show, and you're done. So when you're yeah. doing this contract, six months to six months, and you're already bored at what a, a month in, it sounds like you got to swing, and and it was always changing up. So you weren't doing the same track because I can't imagine you yeah. staying longer if it wasn't changing and something new to do. Yeah, it was crazy. It got to the point where I kind of you know the nights where I show up and it was my regular track, my original track felt like a vacation uh, because, you know, they, God bless them. And I loved it that they kept saying, Hey, would you learn this track or would you be willing to swing into this? And it was always something that was a challenge to me, something that, um, you know, pushed me beyond what my kind of comfort zone would have been. And so it, I think it made me a better performer and it, um, I appreciated the fact that they had the confidence in me and the interest to uh, keep asking me to learn more in the show and to stretch beyond just uh, the singing tracks and to be learning some of the principal male dance tracks. And uh, so that was, it was really exciting. It was really fun to show up every night for work and not necessarily know what you were going to be asked to do and, and kind of be fluid enough to embrace that. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a cool, that was a cool aspect of it that I am not sure 
the majority of people who did that show experienced. I think most people probably had kind of a set track. Um, but you know, there were 85 people in the cast and I, I don't know. I think there might have been two shows where the full cast was there. Um, most of the time, somebody's always either on a planned vacation or out sick or um, things would come up last minute. People, you know, there were always people who were not in the show and you had to cover each other. So um, for a lot of people, it was, you know, the shows could be different night to night to night. But for for me particularly, I was the only person, well, there were a couple people, but, but uh, there were very few of us that would swing from singer that would do singer tracks and dance tracks and you know so it was it was pretty exciting it was very fun what was your life like in vegas after because i think i've known you in new york for most of the time i've known you but i feel like you are outside of new york almost as much as you're in like i know you take jobs in connecticut and, and ashland yeah and like uh, yeah i have you know, done uh, an inordinate amount of regional theater. And I love that. I love the traveling. I love to get to see new and different places. And, but, you know, Vegas, the difference being, um, I'm a member of Actors' Equity, um, which deals with uh, regional theaters around the country that I go to. So through, through those jobs with Actors' Equity, when you go to another city, Connecticut or uh, Boston or Miami, um, they are you there i'm there <laughs> power. i'm gonna find my cord and plug in so i don't lose power but they they have to supply in park um sometimes a rental car they help you know meet your day-to-day -day needs um in in what you need to transition to those that city because they recognize they're bringing you in for a limited period of time for those eight weeks or whatever that period as a guest artist um, they realize that they're bringing you from your home so they you know are required to um, provide those amenities for you with vegas it wasn't that they were hiring you as point of origin so it was my responsibility to find my own place to live to figure out my own transportation um, all of that so it was basically setting up home a second home in a different city and uh, making your life there and so uh, that was a bit of an adjustment uh, it was you know it was pretty fun um, and it was also part of why I think I wanted to commit to a full year because after making those transitions six months seemed like it was kind of ending prematurely um, so I'm going to, I'm going to be, I only have my iPhone. So I'm doing this on my iPhone. I'm going to be walking down to where my plug is. If I lose you, can I call you back? Um, I can distract while you do that too, because okay. I, this is like random on there, but I was in Portland for something at, I can't remember the theater that you were at. I was helping backstage with some stuff oh, and Portland I see this Center giant, yes. And I see this giant poster of was it Anna Karenina and I'm like gosh yes. that guy looks like Michael that sure looks like Michael and then I'm like I think that's Michael Sharon so I asked the concierge if you to send a message backstage I'm like what are the chances that I'm in the same theater and I had I had lost track of you so I'm like like that was a giant poster so that was obvious that you were in Portland <laughs> but it just kind of feels like it's a game like where's Michael now where's so when you were done with that 
full year, the two six month contract, were you like, okay, I've done all I can do. Did you have work lined up or were you like, okay, I think this has run its course. I didn't have work lined up. Um, and, and some people, including one of my brothers thought I was a fool to walk away from a job that was steady income and that I was still enjoying at that point. But, you know, it's really interesting. Um, I think, I don't think that Fluff expected me to read for a second contract, but you audition, they audition three months before the contract ends. So I had to decide, I'd only been there for three months and I had to decide whether I wanted to stay another six months. And in three months, I, there was no way I was ready to leave. Um, as the year started to progress, it was kind of like, yeah, I don't know that this is what my life be. Is the number of people who were backstage in show who had had other careers in Vegas shows, and there was a woman, uh, an older woman, who was one of the uh, backstage crew. She's you would page curtains, and she would do you know a lot of different uh, jobs backstage. But she'd been uh, a principal dancer. I, I don't remember if it was what what the showroom was if it was at the old Lido or but she had been she was just a really she was a British woman she was very uh still very elegant and very refined and dignified and but I remember one night before one of the shows because I was standing in the wing waiting to go on she'd paged the curtain and I led the male singers on at the top of the show and I remember her leaning forward and basically saying it's time to, for you to go. You do not want this to be your life. And um, oh, wow. Fluff knew and several people there in the show knew that, you know, I was an actor. I had a, a career I wanted to be pursuing in New York. And I think that in, in, it was really an act of generosity from them that, that they um, wanted, they, they didn't want me to feel trapped or stuck in something that seemed like it was safe because it was guaranteed work. Mm. And, um, and I just really took that to heart. My dresser who, uh, he was the dresser for all of all six of the male singers. He'd been a headline performer at circus circus as an acrobat with his family. And he brought in clippings and was sharing them with me one night. And, and I started to get the sense that, yeah, this is, this is really, a lifestyle for a lot of people. And I really respected that, but I just knew that that what wasn't what would have made me happy. And so, um, you know, part of, I think the experience of being there in Vegas, uh, it was less than a year later when I went to Rada, Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in London and uh, studied Shakespeare. And um, that kind of changed the trajectory of my career too. It was, as a result of that, I retired at the, the Utah Shakespeare Festival, the Shakespeare uh, Theater Company in Washington, D.C., the Folger Theater in Washington, D.C., uh, Folger Shakespeare Theater, the Oregon Shakespeare Theater, Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Um, and, you know, some of my friends are like, wait, in a year you go from uh, dancing in a Vegas review to doing Shakespeare at, you know, the nation's great Shakespeare theaters and <laughs> and one of them was like yeah your biography or your autobiography will be showgirls to Shakespeare and I thought yeah how, cool, <laughs> how blessed it's such a blessing to be able to kind of run the gamut of that and I wouldn't give up either experience for anything they 
they both were so profound in teaching me so many uh, different things about not just performing, but about who I am. And I had such respect for the other people in Jubilee, you know, the guy who played Samson regularly, who was the, the main swing who got promoted when the, the Samson uh, injured himself. And so I became this other guy's swing, but he was a, a cop. He was a motorcycle cop by day and he'd come and he'd dance Samson at night. And oh my gosh. school teachers in the company, there were one of the other male singers was a, a real estate attorney. And so he'd go practice law all day and then he'd come and sing in Jubilee at night. And, and it was, you know, people that had full fledged lives that, um, you know, a lot of, of parents uh, who had families that were in the show. And, and then there were a lot of, uh, of young dancers who they were like, it, it's been my dream, my life dream to be a showgirl in Vegas. And they're coming and they're living their life dream. And I, it just, it was, I, I was just so impressed with the caliber of people in the show and the caliber of talent. And that's what blew me away more so at the six month contract renewal when I, when I re-auditioned because, you know, you do audition in front of each other and the showroom's full of the current company and full of anyone else who wants to audition and you watch each other's audition and seeing how many dancers from the core that were auditioning for principal dancer and you know part of the gig if you were wanted to audition for one of the principal dance tracks is you had to come with your own number choreographed and perform it for the company oh interesting and so you would see these women who spent their show basically you know as kind of in costume parades because a lot of the tall nudes they, that's a lot of what they did they wore the huge headdresses and the backpacks and they didn't really have the ability to do a lot of heavy duty dancing, but suddenly you'd see them in their leotards and numbers that they choreographed. And you're like, this is the most underutilized level of talent uh, pool that I've ever experienced because they were such phenomenal dancers. And it was such a treat to get to see the caliber of talent that was actually in the show, how deep the, the well of talent was, even though they didn't get to express that. In, in what their their track was in the show that as they were hired but um so that was it that was a real lesson too um and yeah so there was a lot about it that was unexpected and and uh amazing and every night was different and fun and when you said that also you learn about yourself what do you think you learned about yourself in that year of Jubilee that you wouldn't have if you didn't do it? Well, I've made reference. I think I've told you before that I, I think, uh, you know, in a nutshell, it made me, it made me brave. It made me uh, a brave performer. Uh, there were a lot of things that would happen that you felt like you were kind of thrown into situations spur of the moment. There were things that could, malfunction uh things that could go wrong and you're you just figure a way around it and um you know i remember i had been in the show just for about a month and you know still at, at the point where i was feeling confident with what i what my normal track was um and comfortable in it uh but still you know getting my feet under under me with it and um you sign in at six thirty and uh, the line captains all go into Fluff's office to 
uh, find out who's not there, uh, who's out sick, who's on vacation, and who in the line is going to cover the different tracks of, of who's missing. And then about 10 after 7, the line captains come back in and they say, well, so-and-so's out, so you're covering this and you're covering this moment. And, and um, Shannon, my line captain, Shannon Harden, who'd been one of the male, he'd been a male dancer there for a number of years, and then he became one of the singers and was the line captain for the male singers. He came in and um, I'm, you know, finishing putting on my makeup and getting dressed. And he comes into the dressing room and he's like, so Fluff would like to hear you sing the opening tonight. And I just... <laughs> kind of froze in the mirror. I'm like, what? He said, well, Fluff would like to hear you sing the opening number tonight. And the opening number is about a 12 minute medley of, I don't know, eight different songs that one male singer sings the entire medley. And he's on stage, um, the only one with a microphone leading uh, all of the dancers on and introducing the principal dancers. He introduces one of the female singers and they sing a duet, part of a duet. And, and uh, elevators are going up and down around him and spotlights are bringing him up at different points in the stage. And it's just one big production number that he's doing the lead vocal in. I'd never been rehearsed. I'd never looked at the music. I didn't know if it was in my range. I didn't know, you know, I turned to Shannon. I said, I don't know if I even know the lyrics. And he said, well, if you'd rather wait till tomorrow night. <laughs> and I remember looking at myself in the mirror and taking a beat and turning back and I said, if I wait till tomorrow night, I'll just be freaked out for the next 24 hours. So if you're not worried about me going on with no rehearsal, I'm not worried about me going on with no rehearsal. And so I went into the bathroom and I sang through the medley and thought that I knew the, the lyrics just from hearing it over the monitor for the past month while I was in the show. And um, so I went on that night and uh, for both shows and, sang the opening medley and it was one of those experiences where you just go yeah you just go on and do it and that was such a kind of a lesson to what your potential is and um to just kind of being fearless and uh so that was that was a big lesson that not everything needs to be you can't prepare for every situation and and be rehearsed uh, uh and polished that sometimes just going and throwing yourself in the deep end of the pool um, it has a large reward too. Well, there's a lot of people when they, that say they still have dreams or nightmare dreams of being in the show. And it's what you just described, like you're on and you don't know the song or where your costumes are. Right. A lot of us still have those dreams for backstage, but you actually like, that's so bizarre that you're going to go do a full 12 minute thing with no rehearsals. And then the fact that maybe this is the caliber of people that, that are working in these shows that can pivot and figure things out quick. Cause that's really bizarre. If you said that in the theater world, like in South Pacific, you're going to do a whole different thing. Right. Oh, oh, but the that fact that it works. You've, you've learned a meal to Beck in South Pacific, but you're, you're going on as Joe Cable tonight. Yeah. Or right. just throwing, changing your role completely. Yeah. It's yeah. But it, you know, I mean, I've been, I remember even in high school shows, I was always in a, the geek backstage who would sit backstage in the wing and watch the show. And everybody else would be back in the dressing rooms or, you know, whatever, and wait until it was time for them to come on stage and then come running, you know, cross backstage and make their entrance. But I'd sit and I would watch the show. And it was the same with Jubilee. I, I wouldn't sit and watch the show because you're, you know, when you're not on, you're downstairs changing costumes or whatever. But um, 
I was just of the monitor and people would come in and there'd be, you know, a long number and they'd want to turn the monitor down. And this happens even in shows, regional shows that I'm in at theater or whatever. I am always wanting to be so in tune to what's going on on stage. And you do learn an awful lot and absorb an awful lot uh, about, uh, of, of the show that way. But I just always want to hear, I want to hear what the audience's energy is. I want to hear what's, what people are responding to. I want to feel like I'm part of the show, even if I'm not on stage, it keeps me much more involved. And um, I think because of that, uh, you know, it, it surprised me that I knew the lyrics to that just from having listened to it. And s even on some level of consciousness, paying attention to it. Um, but yeah, I've just always kind of absorbed a lot of that stuff and probably know more of other people's roles than I'm even aware of. But. That must make you a much stronger actor because acting is like observing. So the fact that that was always happening, that I'm sure like when you are done with this show, it wasn't that's that chapter and I'm doing something else. And we have talked a lot on this podcast of what people do after because sometimes some of the younger ones are listening and right now they're on a break because of COVID. Like what happens after your show days and like your career just kept going and still is going, which I think I, I think you've worked constant as long as I've known you, which I think is a rare thing, especially if you can do it in Seattle <laughs> and then to go to New York and feel like that you, you've been working nonstop, I think. Well, I've been really blessed, but that was why I, I left Seattle was I, you know, I loved working at the fifth Avenue and the other theaters that the companies that I worked at while I was here. But, you know, you start to feel like there was a limit uh, of, of um, how big the market was. And so I just wanted to be in New York where, you know, it's just a numbers game. And you feel like if you have a bad audition, you've got two more either that day or certainly that week that you can go to, or you've, you, you know, the, it, it, it's just a broader uh, availability of work. And yeah, there are more people that are looking for those same jobs in New York, but scale work the fail it's i mean you know has been opposed to or shied away from going wherever the work is so if that means that i go to houston texas or um la or st louis or whatever if if that's the theater company that's auditioning in new york and they want to hire me i'm happy to go um but yeah i i have been really blessed to be able to keep busy and you know i i mentioned going after that was the the first thing i left jubilee in the fall of 2003 and went back to new york and auditioned for a few things and just kind of felt like after a year in vegas and a year in it felt like i was a different performer as a result of jubilee that i had a different sensibility of things and felt like going back to New York, I was kind of back in the same musical theater circle of the same theaters and the same shows that I had been before. And I wanted something to be different. And I remember at the time it was Backstage Magazine that was actually a newspaper that you'd buy. Now everything's online, but and auditions and all that are all just posted online. But it used to be you would buy Backstage every week and you'd go through and you'd see what auditions were happening that week. And I was flipping through the pages of backstage and in the corner of one of the pages was just a little box that just said, will you be at RADA this summer? 
and you know it said Shakespeare intensive course, ten week course, and and um, and the deadline to audition was in just a few days, and it, something just in my soul really resonated with that, and I thought it's something that I'd always toyed with. I always wanted to go and study Shakespeare in England, or wanted to go and study Greek drama in Greece, and it's like go to the source and you know really really learn what your what your passion is, where it originated. And, and so I called the number and was like, your audition, you know, the deadline is in a few days and have I missed the auditions? And, you know, how can I get involved in this? And she's like, relax, you can send in a video and you've got, you know, you can do it within the next two weeks and just get it to us by such date. And I ended up being accepted to, um, to the program. There are only 28 people from around the world, I guess there's, I think they average about 2000 people that audition for that program wow, each year. And there were, um, there were people from every English speaking country in the world, uh, New Zealand, Australia, obviously England, Canada, America. Um, there was uh, a German, a German guy from, a Korean guy f- via Germany. He lived in Germany for several years. There was a Spanish woman, a Greek woman, an Italian guy. Um, and, you know, they assemble us as a group and we study Shakespeare for 10 weeks and have a show uh, on the West End that's performed a Shakespeare after a week of rehearsal from your casting until your first performance. And so that was another experience and what it means to be brave. Um, mm. But it was, you know one of the best experiences of my life. And that was right on the heels of coming out of Jubilee. And so it was these two real contrasting experiences of as far as what the material was, but, um, you know, and then that led to other doors. The great thing has been even like with Utah Shakespeare festival, I was hired for a season because they needed to find one actor who could play Oberon in Midsummer Night's Dream and Lancelot in Camelot and to find somebody that had the training and skill set to do that musical theater role and that Shakespeare role. They, I was the last person they found for the season because they were having such a hard time finding that track. And so, and the same with Oregon Shakespeare Festival when they hired me back um, it was to do the world premiere of Jeff Whitty's Head Over Heels, which was this big musical that ended up having a life on Broadway a couple of years ago and also play the villain in The Count of Monte Cristo. And so, you know, getting to do, being hired by one theater to do these amazingly diverse roles and different um, uh, performance experiences was so great because I got to fuel both ends of, you know, what I love to do. So I really have, I feel like I've really been blessed in the doors that have opened um, and the opportunities that I've had all around the country to do, um, to continue to perform. So it's, it's been really exciting. You've had really an eclectic career, which it's so fun. It's definitely not boring. And when I started doing this podcast, it was the beginning of quarantine, thinking it's a few weeks. Well, here we are six months later, and every single one of my interviews is people in quarantine with different experiences around the world. And so for you being an actor, and I know your life is on pause anyway, but like to even envision, like we were talking about this before, of what that's going to look like for live theater. My hope is that it's 
for all of us, and it's not very long, but I would love to come see you in Ashland for the Oregon Shakespeare Festival and get to see you, because I'd never have seen you do Shakespeare. So I, I just think, okay, we're on the same coast right now. So when you perform, please let me know, because I would love to see that jubilee to Shakespeare, um, <laughs> that range the, the transition. That, you did a, that transition. Yeah, it's fascinating, because you did that within the same well, year. It wasn't like a trajectory of going towards it. It was like from Vegas to Shakespeare. Yeah, it was kind of whiplash. Um, and, uh, but, you know, I mean, I think that that's, as performers, as artists, that that's what is, that's what fuels us is kind of the variety. You know, you don't want to miss any out on anything, on any opportunity. And if something, you know, I, I think that funny little quiver of anticipation we get right in our solar plexus, I think that that's where our soul lives. And I think that that's, Ooh you know, your soul speaking to you when that quiver happens and you know that that's something that you have to pursue. And that's what I felt when, when Fluff called uh, with the offer for Jubilee and everything fell into place. And that's what I felt when uh, I saw the, the advertisement for accepting applications for RADA. And, you know, that's, you, you learn to trust that and listen to that voice um, and know that that's, where your predestined path is leading. And, you know, we have, we, I believe in predestination. I also believe in choice. Uh, but so we have the choice of following what that predestination is or of digging our heels in and resisting it and go kicking and screaming. And so I think, you know, when we're led to go somewhere um, that, that, following you know giving into that instinct and recognizing that that's the voice that's right for us to follow is part of of growing up as an artist and and knowing that that's the direction that you need to go even if it doesn't seem to necessarily make sense you know i i turned down ironically i turned down playing uh lancelot and camelot at a great theater company in order to go to rada and it was that was a role that I had always wanted to play, and my agent thought I was crazy to be turning down that job to go and go away to school and you know be, get Shakespeare training. But I was committed to it because I felt that that was the right thing. It was following that voice, and then as a result of that, um, a year later uh, or less than a year later, getting out of RADA and the Utah Shakespeare Festival calls out of the blue basically with an offer to play Lancelot in Camelot and Oberon in A Midsummer Night's Dream because they saw my resume and I had the training at RADA and they felt that they could consider, they could hire me sight unseen. I never auditioned for them. And so, you know, it, it's, you follow that little voice, you follow that impulse in your soul that, would, that you know is your soul speaking to you and, you know, uh, it rewards you. God, God, says, look at how easy these opportunities are for me to provide for you if you just, you know, follow the direction that I'm pointing you in and allowing me to speak through you. So anyway, yeah. all of that to say, I, I really do feel blessed uh, in getting to continue to, to uh, earn a livelihood and thrive in uh, what I love to do. And uh, I do think that you know, uh, the world as we know it will probably continue to change. Performing arts will continue to grow and change. But ultimately, we as human beings are always going to want the thrill of an experience, 
an, an emotional experience, which what, is what performing arts always is. In some, it raises something in us emotionally. And to be able to share that experience with people sitting, strangers sitting next to us, um, that we collectively get to experience for one time only, because no show is the same, uh, night, after, night to night to night, no concert is the same, no live performance can ever be duplicated. So that group of people that experience it collectively, whatever night that happens to be in the theater or the concert venue or the dance hall, you're the only people that will ever experience that together. And that bonds, binds us as human beings. And that's why live performance is such, uh, it's so pal palpable of an experience to us as human beings. We will always go back to it. We will always need it. And after the pandemic subsides and we figure out how we operate post coronavirus, um, we will come back to some form of that and uh, hopefully bigger and better. And um, so, you know, it's just a matter of time and we've all got to just tread water until that can happen. Okay. You took my words that I, I will not add anything else to that. Cause I was going to ask you something, but you answered it without me asking. It was so beautiful <laughs> because when we're waiting, if that soul speak is there, it's going to lead you after the pandemic that you listen to that and it's on a little break and we got to take care of ourselves in other ways right now. So that when it's time to emerge again, there's going to be art that comes out of this place of waiting that it's going to be different. And I'm just kind of, we can't guess what it's going to be, but I love the whole thing of listening to that solar plexus of so listening to your soul. I think that's a perfect way to end Michael. Um, this has been really inspiring because I've known you and I've loved your career, but it was that whole thing that we actually both, for bluebell dancers <laughs> and not even knowing that part of our, our common story. Yeah. It was really fun to hear your experience. And I'm going to look for that Christmas card. And um, if you have any of you in your loincloth as Samson, please send that my way too. And I'll, I'll tell everybody, I'll yes, you're welcome. I've, but I'm, <laughs> I want to say too, I'm exceedingly proud of you um, and watching uh, your career and your, your countless ways of finding how to express your passion and your love, not just of dance and dancers, but of the community that you create and that you support um, and that it's enlarging all around the world with your podcast and that you always find ways of, of being able to express that. And I, I'm really proud of you and, and honored to have you as my friend. Oh my gosh, thank you, Michael. Okay, I'm going to cry a little bit. I'm going to say goodbye as I do that. And, and all of us want to say thank you just for your words of wisdom and what you shared was beautiful and needed right now. Well, thank you too for giving me an opportunity to, to express it and also to say it for myself because it's, you know, uh, we all need to remember some of that and who we are as artists and that we um, aren't dependent on other people giving us permission or opportunity to express ourselves through our art that we um, can verbalize it. We can talk about it. We can, we can visualize it and, um, and produce it. So uh, regardless of our circumstances and that's having an ability to be in a, inside a theater or a dance hall or a concert hall performing doesn't, make us less of artists when we're not given those opportunities. So it's who we are. I have, I have my hands up. I'm saying amen. <laughs> that is perfect way to end. Oh my gosh. Thank you, Michael. 
Thank Take you. Care. Take care of that solar plexus. I will. You too. <laughs>